getting just a touch of feedback up here. Well, as you can see from the screen, the title of this morning's sermon is Praying for Effective Outreach. Praying for Effective Outreach. Now, if you're new here and you haven't been with us for the last number of weeks, 27 weeks or so, we've been going through a series on the Apostle Paul's prayer. Also, if you're new here and you're wondering, like, what is the typical service like? Well, the typical service is we try to teach content from God's Word. You know, out, out on the sign as you pulled in, it said, Heritage Trail Bible Church. And the, the desire is to teach from God's Word, not for me just to share thoughts about my own opinions or things that are near and dear to me, but that we would actually open up the Word of God, look at some truth that is found in it to talk about what does it say, what does it mean, why would it matter in my life? And so very often we'll do studies through whole books where we'll teach through the whole book of Second Thessalonians and it will pick up next week wherever we left off the week before and we'll p- try to pull some, some truths, some principles from it and some applications for our lives. We sometimes do more topical studies where we'll look at a series on something else and in this case it happens to be a series about the Apostle Paul's prayers. Now at the same time it's still an expository series in the sense that we're focusing on one passage each week and looking at a prayer of his breaking down what does it say what does it mean and why would this matter to my life Uh, by the way if you're thinking about doing a devotion or teaching a Sunday school class or you're ever going to be put in a position where people are going to listen to what you're going to teach about God's word as led and directed by God's spirit that's just a a kind of a three-part thing to keep in mind I, I need to come back to God's truth what does it say talk a little bit about what does it mean and then make some applications about why would this matter and so just food for thought there but as we think about Paul's prayers, we've been seeing a wide range of them. The series has spanned a wide range of prayers with a, and they covered a variety of spiritual matters. Now what we have seen is that 27 of his prayers into the New Testament here, almost all of them have been focused on spiritual matters, on things that relate to the well-being of the people that he is writing to. Now, we also observe that that doesn't mean that Paul doesn't pray for other things that are more personal or more uh, physical realm-oriented or temporal realm-oriented, just that as he's going to write a letter to a whole church, in this case, the Thessalonian believers, when he's going to write a letter to a whole church, he's going to focus on their spiritual well-being first and foremost. So we've, we've mentioned that a couple of times. But his prayers have covered a wide range of spiritual matters in terms of him promoting promoting their spiritual success by saying these are the kinds of things that I'm praying about or praying for you. Now hopefully by seeing this wide range of prayers about a variety of spiritual matters, it has caused you to consider or reevaluate the content of your prayers. And I know it has been very useful to me as a lot of the things that Paul is specifically praying for are not things that I had been specifically praying about, but they're all relating to the spiritual well-being of other people in, in my life, but you can apply each of these prayers to yourself too. So start by, as we've been thinking about these prayers, am I going to pray this for myself and then am I going to pray these kinds of things for others that I care about in my life? Now as you think about today's prayer, praying for effective outreach, it probably is something you have considered. It's probably something that you actually have prayed for in some fashion or another previously. But perhaps not as frequently as every believer should in terms of there are times where even on our our prayer list that we send out for church here that we have right on there prayer for the pray for the St. Louis County outreach or the Alaskan Fair uh, outreach where the gospel is going forward let's pray for the local county fair outreach or let's pray for this youth event that's coming out that the gospel would be presented clearly that the gospel would run swiftly we're going to see is how Paul phrases it we we do pray those things and I'm sure you have considered and prayed about those things too but the question is are you praying about it as often as you could or should be in the sense that that's a big part of the Christian's mission we think about the Christian's mission and I'm not saying that I'm going to get it completely right but if you love God if, it, if the instruction is uh, of all things love God with all your heart soul and strength if that is uh, if that is an umbrella under over which everything else could fall and then the second part of that that Jesus talked about is love your neighbor as yourself so if loving God and loving people is just generally a very 
I would say, a summarizing way of speaking about the Christian's mission. How do you love people? Well, then you talk about things like being an ambassador for the gospel message, being a reflection of God's light into the lives of those that don't even know Christ. If you loved people, you'd be concerned about their eternal destiny, right? So that naturally flows from just that general overview of loving people. When it comes to other believers, if you loved people, you would want to minister to their needs, right? So you don't have to even specifically say that that's the mission, but it is as you start to break down what does it mean to love people. If we're loving God and responding to the love that he has for us, what does that even involve or look like? And so sometimes as you're thinking about these prayers, if we love people and we're interested in their eternal destiny, or if we love even people who are saved and we're interested in their spiritual growth, wouldn't we want to be praying that the message the, the gospel message, the good news from Jesus, and it's not just relating to the gospel of Christ as in his death, burial, and resurrection for sinners who were on their way to an eternity apart from him, but for his stepping in as the rescuer, the savior, to make a way where there was no way. That's good news. That's the best news ever. But the other good news, Jesus taught many things about living life in union with him, in intimacy with him, in dependence on him, as we could live and enjoy the life that you have as a child of his through simple faith in what he'd already done for you. So as a result of that faith in what Christ had done for you, you're born into a family, you're adopted into God's family, you become royalty, and you can say, brethren or beloved, how, how blessed are we to be called sons of God, that we could be sons and daughters of the King of Kings making us royalty. And as you think about, well, what does that entail? That entails now my citizenship has changed. I'm no longer a citizen of earth. I'm no, my identity has changed. I'm no longer identified as being dead in my trespasses and sins, dead in Adam. I'm now alive in Christ, not because of anything that I've done, but because of my faith and acceptance of what he's done for me as he was willing to send his only son to die on a cross on Calvary for sins that I had committed that you had committed, even though he was sinless. And as he became sin for us who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God through faith in what he had done for us. His righteousness could be then credited to our account, not because we had checked off a bunch of boxes for God. We had gone through a bunch of religious hoops. We had gone through a bunch of religious rituals. But because we had put our faith in what he had done for us, even though we didn't deserve it, that's what grace is talking about, God in his love dying for us, he now is paying our debt, a debt that we owed, a debt that would have kept us forever separated from God, ultimately in the lake of fire. But that debt had to be satisfied either through our death to pay for our own iniquity, for our own transgression, for our own sin, or an innocent substitute would have to die in the place of sinners, and that was Jesus Christ. So as Jesus Christ died in our place, he didn't die for just some of the sins of the world. He died for all of the sins of the world. He didn't die for just some sinners. He died for all sinners. He said, all who will come and drink freely of the water of life that I offer too. So the question isn't, can everyone be saved? The question is, will everybody, will any individual person make a decision to put all of their eggs in the basket of faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, as Christ is the only satisfying, propitiatory payment for our sins? He was the sufficient payment that could deal with the, the debt that we owed. And he could give us life in place of the death that we were facing. Again, not because of what we were doing for God, but because of what he was willing his love to do for us. And that's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that it's not what can I do, it's what has been done for me. It's not about who I am, it's about who he is. It's not about how hard I'm working, it's about the work that Jesus Christ already accomplished for me. So the only question is if it's a free gift, if it's offered to sinners who don't deserve it, and if everybody is equally under the condemnation of sin, and if everybody has an equal need to be rescued, then what's preventing you from being rescued. And the Bible says very clearly the only thing that's preventing you from knowing that for sure you will spend eternity in, the, in heaven with God when you die, the only thing that's stopping you from knowing that is have you believed in the finished work of Jesus Christ or are you trusting in yourself or something else to save you? Those are your two options. There aren't many different kinds of Christians. There's only two kinds. There's ones that profess to be Christians, but they're really trying to make themselves acceptable to God through human works. And God says, that could never be acceptable to me. He says, when your human work is produced through your human strength, it can never satisfy me. In fact, the prophet Isaiah says, all of your works of righteousness, 
your good works, all of your best attempts at being right, they're filthy rags. And so the one that's trying to work their way to God, the one who's going to stand at the gate of eternity and say, you should let me into heaven because I deserve it, because I've done so much for you, God, that person is going to be deeply disappointed because God's going to say, your best wasn't good enough because my standard of righteousness was perfect righteousness. Just because you did the best that you could, that isn't enough to deal with the consequence of you being identified with sinfulness. And unless something was done about that, I can't accept your efforts. Imagine, though, believing that you could be good enough to earn your way to heaven. That's what many people in this country who identify as Christians believe. Now, they teach it in a lot of different ways. They would explain it in a lot of different ways. But if you really tunnel down to the core of what they believe, they believe that heaven is for good people and that hell is for bad people, that you do your best and then maybe God does the rest. They haven't put their faith completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. So what is a true Christian? A true Christian is a Christ one, one who says, I can do nothing for God. I couldn't rescue myself. I was hopeless, helpless, and hellbound unless I could be rescued by one who had the strength to do for me what I could never do for myself, and that was Jesus Christ. So that person comes to the, the point of salvation with a very different posture. Instead of a posture of pride, look at what I've done for God, that person comes to the point of salvation from a place of humility. If you don't see that you have a problem, if you don't see that you're hopeless, if you don't see that you can't help yourself, then there's no way to be rescued. See, you don't grab a hold of the life buoy that a lifeguard is holding out to you while you're drowning unless you realize you're drowning. And so that's why the first thing a person has to realize is that they have a problem, they have a need, and that it's a desperate need. It's a life or death kind of a need. And to see that they cannot rescue themselves and then at that point of humility, in that point of abandonment of self, that person is in a place to grab a hold of the rescue that's being offered by Jesus Christ and to put their faith completely in what Jesus has done for them, knowing that they could never do that for themselves. So it's faith alone by grace alone, but it's grace alone apart from works. can't work for it. To be a gift, again, it has to be freely given and freely received. So as we think about this mission of the Christian, we're thinking about what is, why are we here? Well, one part of it is to, one, realize that truth for ourselves, truth that was presented by Jesus Christ, passed along to the apostles, passed along to the early church, passed along to us, becoming a part of the canon of Scripture, God's Word, as it was intended to benefit us. And that's why as you go through the Bible, you can say, I don't agree with what you just said. I think you do have to do your best. I don't think God's going to rescue people who aren't trying really hard. Then I would just say to you, don't argue with me about it. Just consider what the Bible says about it. If you look at this verse up on the wall here, it says that God loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. If you skip forward two verses, it says, he who believes is not condemned. But he who believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Friends, there is only one thing that is condemning mankind and it's not that they're not trying hard enough. The only thing that's condemning mankind is that they're rejecting the Savior, the one who is trying to or wanted to save them, who declared when he died for all of their sins that it was finished, that the debt had been paid in full, that there was nothing left for man to accomplish, that man needed to receive in faith what Jesus had done for him. So you'll see that more than a hundred times in the New Testament as the Bible repeatedly declares that the way to have access to God is through faith in what Jesus has done for you. Now back to again the mission. The mission is, are we going to proclaim that to others? What else did Jesus teach? Well, Jesus taught about faith alone, by grace alone and Christ alone, how we would get saved or get access to this family of God to be freed from the debt or the consequence of our sin through faith in what Christ had done for us. But then the rest of the New Testament is primarily addressed to believers about how can we live life with God? Now that we are born into God's family, now that he says, you are sealed by my Holy Spirit and that I'll never let you go, now that we have assurance of our salvation, now that we know what our future holds, what about this life? And the Bible declares a very similar message that we are saved from the influence of sin in our everyday lives from the bondage that we were into sin. We're saved from that by faith in God's provision to deal with our sinfulness and to provide for us when we were hopeless apart from him. 
So we are saved in an ongoing kind of a sense, not saved positionally as in, am I going to go to heaven when I die, but saved from the bondage or the influence or the power of the sin nature trying to always derail us, trying to always get us off track, always to convince us that life lived for Christ isn't worthwhile, that there's more joy to be found, there's more purpose to be found in the world, in the world's way of thinking as different baubles are are always held in front of us and different flashing lights are always seeking to distract us from living our lives in the way that God wants, in a way that would bring him honor and glory. And as, as we go through that life, the temptation is to live life apart from God even though positionally we are now a part of God's family. He, he will never let us go. We are God's children. But the temptation is then to live like we're, we're lost to live in a, lay, in a way that is incompatible with who we are by way of identity with Christ. And so instead of living in, in light of the truth that we know about God's provision to deal with what we could never deal with on our own, we actually start to try to work out our faith in the second tense, in the, in the sense of present tense. We try to work that out through human effort. Even though we had to realize that we could never have saved ourselves from the penalty of sin through human effort, we now try to live the Christian life by human effort apart from a complete dependence on God. Apart from a focus and a humility that says, without me you can do nothing just as Jesus declared even in the book of John. He said, without me you have no capacity for living a life that will bring me honor and glory. That's why I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to seal you with my spirit. I'm going to empower you with the spirit of God so that you now could live a life that would bring me honor and glory. But only if you get yourself out of the equation again. Only if you see that I am helpless to live a life through my own strength that would bring God glory. I need God's spirit to direct and empower and work in my life and provide in my life so that I could live in a way that would please God. Now, does that mean you have no responsibility in this? No. You have a choice to make each and every moment of each and every day. Am I going to be focused on myself? Am I going to be distracted by the world? Or am I going to have my eyes fixed on Jesus Christ? Am I going to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith? Am I going to choose you this day whom you will serve? Am I going to have this positive volitional response where I say, I don't want to do me anymore. Living me, living for myself, directing my own life has been a dumpster fire. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to rely on my own strength. That's gotten me nowhere. I don't want to waste any more of time. I don't want to have my life fade away with no redeeming eternal value. I don't want to keep chasing after the lies of Satan and keep chasing after the things that the world say, says will make me happy even though I'm miserable right now. Because I'm not trusting God, I'm not resting in God, I'm not focused on God, I'm not letting him have his way in my life. I'm going to stop quenching the Spirit, I'm going to stop resisting the Spirit. I'm going to draw nearer to the Lord, I'm going to pursue the things of righteousness, not again through my own strength, but I'm going to make a decision to put the focus on those things so that God can then, through his power, make that a reality in my life, that my life could be well spent. It could bring God glory. It could be pleasing to God. It could be beneficial to me. It could be a life filled with God's joy and God's peace and God's perfect and perf purpose and God's contentment. I'm sick of myself. I don't want to do that anymore. Did you get to that point? You need to get to that point. That's where your part in, in this is, is to see that if I don't want to align my eyes and align my focus on God and let God work in my life, this life is going to be absolutely wasted. Now, does that mean you won't go to heaven? No. Whether or not you go to heaven is dependent on one thing. Have you made a decision to put all of your trust and all of your faith in God's provision to deal with your sinfulness? And if at a point in time in your life you did that, the Bible says you are sealed, you are a child of God, and he will never let you go. But imagine going to heaven, standing before the Lord, not in the sense of judgment, but in a sense of giving an account for the time that you had here in life. Are you going to go to heaven with the confidence that the Apostle Paul had when he said, well done, he said he expected to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That was a verse that was actually in the pamphlet for the funeral yesterday. Well done, the good and faithful servant. He says, I have fought the fight. I have kept the faith. I have run the race that was set in front of me. 
He says, there, I know that there's laid up for me a, a crown of righteousness that the Lord's gonna give not just to me but to everyone who loves his appearing. To everyone who is faithful to wanna live a life that would bring God glory, God actually says he's gonna reward us. I mean, what better reward could there be than already knowing you're going to heaven, that you're gonna spend eternity with God? But this is like an award on the top, a reward on top of a reward. You see, I don't, you can't even understand it. Like the doctrine of rewards is even hard to understand because heaven is going to be perfect. And God says, but at the same time, he's going to reward those of his children that were wanting to live their lives in a way that would bring him honor and glory. So Paul knew that he wasn't perfect. He said, I haven't arrived. I haven't attained. I haven't achieved. I don't get it right all the time. He says, but I don't focus on the things I get wrong. I don't look back at the things that I got wrong and dwell on them. He said, instead, I look forward to things that are in front of me and I try to run the race that's left in front of me. You know what? You can't change the past. Your past is irreparable. But you have an irresistible future in front of you with the Lord. And the question is, as you think about the mission, if the mission is to proclaim Christ and to minister to one another and to edify and build up another, one another with what? Build up one another with God's truth, with, God, with the, the truth from God's word. I can't build you up with human wisdom. You can't build me up with human wisdom. So to come alongside of somebody and build them up involves God's truth too. So as we think about this outreach of proclaiming God's truth, the truth about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to those who don't know Christ, but the truth of God's provision to meet our every need and how God wants to live this life of intimacy and closeness with us in a very personal, relational kind of way, like Dave talked about even on Wednesday, that, that, that we have access to this relationship with God, that, that we would want to promote that message. And so naturally, as you think about speaking on or having an effective outreach, are we going to even be praying for that? Like I've gone way off track here in the sense of what is, like that's a whole message. We could end here this morning right there as we just summarize this idea that God has a a plan for our lives to live life in intimacy with us. But as you think about that message, are we praying for that? Are we praying that that message, that truth of God that could lead to or could promote that kind of an outcome in our lives, are we praying that that would be effectively communicated? Well, that's what Paul talks about this morning as we dive into this passage. I don't, again, I don't know what even got into me here this morning, but we're going to get into this passage now. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, turn there. Let's take a closer look at it. We think, though, about proclaiming this message of God's truth, being focused on God's truth, and praying that it would be effective. Are we praying that it would be effective? Let's start by just reading verses 1 through 5 so we have the context. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us, another one of Paul's prayers, that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may, here's his second part of his prayer, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you both that you will do and that you do and will do the things we command you. Verse five, now we, now may the Lord, here's a second prayer, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. So as we unpack this verse one here, not verse one, verse one here. Finally, brethren, pray for us. Now there's two parts to this, that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. I put those together. And then the second part of that is that we may be, I'll pick it up in verse two, delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. So those are the two sort of aspects to Paul's personal prayer for himself and his ministry team that he is traveling with. Those are the two prayers. But we'll break down the first one here. We have first he's saying pray for us. Now I'm not going to say much about that, but I will say that that's an imperative. In, in the Greek language, he's saying this is something that is vital. This is something of critical importance. So when he says pray for us, you could put an exclamation point after the us. Pray for us. It's almost like he's shouting it and saying this is something that is vital. We need your prayers. And, and, and I hope you are looking at it that way as you think about prayer, that prayer is so vital that we could even put an exclamation point after it when we say, pray for us. And it, it was interesting that one of the things that was shared about Dave Samuelson even yesterday that I didn't know, I, I wasn't familiar with, but in his dealings with another believer that he was close to and worked with, Dave Sandstrom, Dave said that 
Dave said that Dave, both Daves, <laughs> Dave said that Dave would, would often, you know, say goodbye, you know, depart from him on any given time by saying, I'm going to pray for you and you pray for me. And I think about that. You'd never say something like that if you didn't see the value in prayer, one, and if you didn't have a heart for people. I'm going to be praying for you. And will you pray for me? See, see, that's what people who are joined intimately together as a family, that's what brothers and sisters would say to each other. If you saw the value of prayer, instead of saying, asking for some other kind of assistance from somebody that you cared about and, and offering another kind of assistance to them, if you saw the value of prayer, you would be asking for that from others and you would be saying, I'm praying for you you would actually be praying for them too. There, there's another part to that. Not just saying it, but doing it. And I think about that. Paul is, he's not too proud to be asking for prayer and to be shouting it in a sense, pray for us. Now, he says this is also in present tense, meaning don't just pray for us once and then forget about it. Pray for us and have this be an ongoing thing in your life. Pray and continue to pray for us. Now, there are several passages we've already looked at. Romans 15, 30 through 32. Ephesians 6, 18 through 19. Colossians 4, 2 through 4. 1 Thessalonians 5, 25. We looked at all of those already. Those are all other times that he said he's asked for some specific prayer. And so this is, in fact, the, the fifth one then that we're looking at of times where Paul has asked for prayer for himself and the ministry team. Now, what are the two specific prayer requests? Well, they both relate, and this is where our title comes from, they both relate to Paul's underlying focus on his mission to proclaim Christ. This mission to proclaim Christ. So as I was thinking about what do they have in common, they're both related to the effectiveness of the outreach the effectiveness of the outreach. And, and as you think about this, this consistently represents the focus of Paul's prayer request. Paul is focused on running a race and seeking to avoid distractions. And so his prayers then are focused on the effectiveness of this mission that he's on to proclaim Christ. He, he sees himself as this ambassador or spokesperson for a way that God could speak, a conduit that God could speak through. And so that's what he's praying for. And, and it made me think, are we corporately and individually mission-focused? You know, it's easy to be distracted. Like you think, well, naturally a church that gathers in terms of gathers to celebrate a common bond in Jesus Christ and to, to, to look at the word of God, to, to look at a passages from God's word, naturally that church is going to be mission-focused, right? Well, should be mission-focused, but it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to focus on even the facility. It's easy to focus on personalities. It's easy to focus on other people and, and how they've wronged you or they haven't done right by you or they didn't do this, that, or the other thing. Or it's easy to focus on the things that aren't going right. It's easy to focus even on, on the kind of the programming of the church instead of the being mission-focused, the mission of the church, which is to be a light, a bright beacon of light for ourselves and for the community around us. And, and are we doing that? Are we focused on that first and foremost? In any event, that's something to be thinking about. Paul's praying about that, though. He doesn't want to be distracted from running the race that's set in front of him, the mission. Now, there's two com components to the first prayer request. The first, though, is that the word of the Lord may run swiftly. Now, word of the Lord here is a reference to the gospel of Christ, the teaching of Christ. It's the gospel of Christ is a more common expression instead of the word of the Lord, but they're both referring to the teaching of Jesus Christ, the gospel about Jesus Christ, but much more than that, the teaching uh, that Jesus Christ even had as he was presenting his truth to his disciples. And as you think about what that entails, here's just one quick reference to 
uh, a passage where it's word of the Lord is used. And again, it's primarily focused on the gospel outreach. And you see that here in the context of the first letter he wrote to these same believers in 1 Thessalonians 1.8. He says, for from you the word of the, Lord has, word of the Lord has sounded forth, meaning that we're conduits again that God can speak his truth through. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out. It's the idea of the the mission here is that there'd be outreach, that we wouldn't be too inverted, introverted. We would have this sense of interest in the gospel going out, going forth. And he says, we don't need to say anything about it because you're fulfilling the mission. That's what he said to them previously there in 1 Thessalonians, the first letter. So now we talk about the word of the Lord running swiftly. Isn't it fun to give human qualities or to personify even something like the gospel or the message or the truth of God? The truth of God is now running swiftly. And he's saying, may that be the case. Pray that that would be the case. And it refers to advancing, spreading, or progressing quickly. And that's exactly what happened in the early church. The best illustration of this is like a wildfire that is burning and it's uncontrollable and it's spreading rapidly. And that's what Paul's praying about. Let this gospel message, this message about Jesus Christ, the truth of God, let that run quickly. Let that spread uncontrollably. And you think about that. Is it possible for the gospel to spread rapidly like that? And the answer is it did. We don't have time for it, but the book of Acts tells a fascinating story. Here's what I want you to do. You know, I don't give you enough homework. Actually, let's turn, let's turn to one. Let's turn to one. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. I'm going to get you started. Then, put your, then you're going to put your marker there. And for devotions and for homework, you're going to go through and you're going to look for every mention in Acts. Acts, again, is a transitional book talking about the transition from Jesus and his time here on earth to the development of the early church. But you look for every time it talks about how the gospel was spreading and it was spreading rapidly. I want to, we'll start with 241. I'll just give you one example here. And then you can pick up and run with that. I had Nine of them we were going to go through this morning. Maybe we'll do that another time. All right, Acts 2.41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. Just even to think about baptism there. We have a baptism of the Spirit of God as every person becomes identified with the death, burial, and Jesus, uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the moment that they're saved. And then traditionally, the, even in the early church, there was baptism of this symbolic testimony to public testimony to the community around you that you were now identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, of course, in arid climates, waterways were the source of all of where the community activity took place. And, and you have instances of immediately upon somebody giving, getting saved, they would go and publicly make this profession of their faith with this symbol, symbolism of being baptized in a local water source. But there was that day, those that gladly received, that's, will you receive the truth of Jesus? But that day there were 3,000 souls that were added to them. Talking about something spreading quickly, 3,000. There's another passage you'll get to if you just, again, work your way through Acts. 5,000 people that got saved 3,005 I mean think of that the gospel can spread quickly but it can't spread quickly if people aren't enthusiastic about their own salvation I mean imagine trying to capture the interest of somebody about the hope that's in you when you go around in a constant constant state of despair when you're gloom and doom all the time when there's no, there's no excitement or life in you about the word of God, when you have no interest in people, when you avoid people, when you don't pursue people, when you're not friendly to people, when you won't seek people out, when you won't converse with people, when you won't forgive people, when you, when you have this kind of a persona, how is it that the hope that's in you ever is going to be communicated to someone else? It, it won't. So as you think about that, I have 
so much to be thankful for in my life. I could, you could list many of these blessings that you have in Christ, but how about just number one? Beloved, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we could be called sons of God. On your very worst day again, you're a child of God. Just start there. Wake, wake up with that. And then just let that be the life song that you're going to sing as you go through your day that I'm a child of God. The creator God of the universe loves me and sees me as his child and has provided absolutely everything that I need. Start with that. And then as the joy of the Lord is your strength, people will see that joy in you. And perhaps they would want to know about that hope that is in you. In any event, go through this on your own. That's your homework. There's Acts 2.41, Acts 2.47, Acts 4.4, Acts 6.7, Acts 8.25. I'm saying this so fast that you can't write them down. 9, 9.31, 12.24, 13.49, 14.1. I say that so you'll have to do the work. That just got us through the first 14 chapters of Acts and you could keep going. But just, it's, it's fun. I had fun doing it. Just page, one page at a time. You can just be skimming, right? You can see what the different sections are about. Look for sections where it spread like a wildfire. Now, maybe that will encourage us. Now, I wanted to come to this point, though. That's exactly what happened in the earlier church. This was occurring, though, through these believers at this local church. How do we know that? We just read the verse. Acts, uh, sorry, 1 Thessalonians 1.8, in the first letter to them, he said, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, through you, in every place that you're going. The word of God, your faith toward God, it's gone out. That was happening with these very believers. So it was happening in the early church in general. It was happening with these very believers. It, this is something that every believer should participate in, though. So you have first. Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And what does this say? And always be ready to give a defense to some of the people, no, to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, they'll, I just said this, they're never going to ask you about the hope that's in you if they can see no hope in you. If you're the most miserable, hopeless person on the planet, even though you have everything to be hopeful about because you're God's child and your future is secure, but if you're going about not living in light of that, if practically you're not appropriating that in your everyday thinking, in your everyday walk, nobody's going to want to know about your hope because you don't have any hope that you're showing. Now, I'm not saying manufacture some hope. I'm just saying be hopeful by meditating on who you are to God, what God has done for us, for you, how blessed you are by God. Now, that should just fill you with hope. May the God of peace fill you with hope. Go back to book of Romans, what, 15, 13. Fill you with hope in believing. Are you going to presently believing, be believing in what God has done for you? So this idea of being ready, it's, the idea is make a defense for our hope, the hope of the gospel. Make a defense of that, that hope that you have. With what though? With an aim to persuade. You see how when it says be ready to give a defense, that's talking about persuasively trying to persuade another person to put their trust in Jesus Christ. Not by browbeating them, but by utilizing the scripture, utilizing some preparation for the gospel, having put some time into actually being able to communicate the gospel clearly so that the message is clear so that people would have the opportunity to respond to it. Now, the next point I want to make about running swiftly is that people sharing the gospel with others, it's God's evangelistic blueprint. So this was modeled by the early church. It was occurring at this specific local church. It should be something that every believer participates in. And now we see that it's God's model, or it's, it's, it's God's evangelistic blueprint that the gospel would be shared with others. See this in Romans chapter 10, verse 14 through 15a. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Now, it's true that in the specific context here, this is in reference to Jewish individuals responding to the message of hope, the message of the Messiah, the message of Jesus Christ. But it's universally a true principle as you think about how can they call on him of whom, in whom they have not believed. 
See, nobody can call on or depend on or rest in or turn to God if they've never known him, if they've never believed in him. How can they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Just follow the pattern here. And and how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? You know, so you think about being sent out ones. That's something that we should take to heart. God's blueprint is that we would share the gospel with others so they have the opportunity to believe. So then the question is, are you praying that the gospel would spread quickly? Paul's saying pray for us that the word of God may run swiftly. Are we doing that? Are you praying that God would use you to accomplish this? Are you praying for boldness so that you'd be ready to give that answer? Are you praying for willingness that you would be willing to communicate God's truth to the people that God brings your way in life. Now the second part of this first prayer request is that the word of God may run swiftly and then what goes with it is that the word of the Lord may be glorified. You have to insert the word of the Lord. It's referring to both parts of this, that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and that the word of the Lord may be glorified. Now this refers to something to be glorified is to be praised, honored, extolled, which is another word for praise, magnified, made bigger, elevated, meaning lifted up. So you're thinking about the mission of the Christian is to live to lift up Jesus Christ. And so that's Paul's prayer, that the word of the Lord, he's talking about his own ministry, though the ministry with this team of workers that he is going and sharing the gospel with, he's traveling with, so these other, again, it's him plus other people, but he's praying that we would be effective, that the word of the Lord would run swiftly through this outreach that we're engaged in, and that the word of the Lord may be glorified or made bigger or elevated or honored or praised. Now, Most translations have be honored in place of be glorified, that the word of the Lord would be honored. Now the object of this honor or praise is the word of the Lord. Paul wants the God's truth to be honored. Now how would God's word or God's truth be honored, especially as it relates to the gospel message? Well, it would be successfully communicated, that's where the run swiftly part comes in, and then the honored part is it would be accepted. So the idea here is that Paul is saying, pray for us that God's word could be communicated clearly and successfully, run swiftly, and that it would be glorified or it would be honored, it would be elevated by being accepted. And what a, you think about what a hollow victory it would be if the word of the Lord spread rapidly, but it wasn't accepted by anyone. You say, well, then it couldn't spread. Well, there's a lot of things sometimes that sometimes people could preach or proclaim something that they've never believed. But let's just say that everyone was talking about the gospel, but nobody was believing it. That'd be pretty sad. And so that's really what he's getting at here. Now he says, just as it is with you is how he ends that first verse. Just as it is with you. Just, it points to their own exa- example of having received and accepted the truth starting with the gospel message. And you see that here in 1 Thessalonians, again, the first letter here, chapter 2, verse 13. He says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing because what happened? You received the word of God, which you heard from us. There's our, our pattern again. Somebody was willing to proclaim the gospel. They were able then to hear the gospel. They then had to receive the gospel. It says you welcomed it, meaning you invited it right into your house, the house of your life. You invited God's truth into the house of your life and you recognized that it was God's word. It wasn't just something that we were saying. And then it can, because you've welcomed it into your life, it can work effectively in your life. You know, God's truth can't work effectively in your life if you don't accept it, you don't believe it, you don't welcome it into your life, you don't spend any time on it. I mean, so often Christians are like, oh, I love God so much. You, you love him so much that you never want to learn more about him. You never want to read more about him. You don't want to talk to him. You don't want to spend time with other believers fellowshipping around your common faith in him. That doesn't sound like a deep love. That sounds like something that you wish maybe were true, but it's just not true. How often is that the case? where we've become content in our Christian lives to just have been convinced of something, and we are convinced, to be sure that it's true, we're convinced that it's true, to desire and even want something to be true, but then practically speaking, to just accept the idea that it's absolutely not true in our lives, 
and just give up and say, I guess that's the way it's going to be. Because I've been doing this for years and nothing seems to change. That defeatist attitude is not what God wants for you. You're an overcomer. You're an overcomer because he's an overcomer and you're identified with him. Victory is available. Just because we've had past failures, show of hands, <laughs> just, and that was earlier this morning for me. Just, I mean, just because you've had past failures, we don't have to wallow in the past. We don't have to give up. We don't have to come to a place that say, man, I'm just an Eeyore believer, can just never get it right, poor me. I just feel sorry for myself. You know what? Maybe the problem all along is you just keep trying to do this the wrong way. You're trying to do the right things, but you're trying to do them the wrong way. You're still, you're still stuck like Paul was in Romans chapter 7 where maybe even you want the right things, but you're still trying to do them in your own strength. So you're in a place where you really are insane because you have this, you've accepted this idea that doing the same thing over and over again, which has never produced the results you want in the past, it's somehow going to magically start doing that. that that's not going to work. It's time, for, it's time for a new alternative. And that is, Lord, help me to want to live for you and help me to realize, search, search me out. Help me to realize why it is that I can't just put all of my eggs in the basket of trusting you. Help me to trust you. Help my unbelief. Help my faith to grow so that I could depend and trust in you to give me victory where in the past my life has been plagued with defeat. I'm not a defeated Christian. I'm a victorious Christian because I'm in Christ and he's victorious. He's enabled, and en- he's en- enabled me and he's filled me with all of the blessings and provisions that are necessary for me to live a victorious life. The question isn't could I have an experience and realize Christian victory. It's could I get out of the way enough and trust God enough and depend on God enough and walk by faith enough instead of sight and human effort that I could experience that victory in any event that the word of the Lord may be glorified just as it is with you. Now verse two, in that, he's continuing his prayer here. Now here's his second specific prayer request. That we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for not all have faith. Now this isn't just randomly put in there. It's put in there in the context of the gospel running swiftly. So this isn't just that Paul is praying, could I be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men? He's saying that I could be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men as it pertains to the mission or the gospel outreach, which is that I desire that the gospel would run swiftly. So this is that we may be delivered. He's just talking about being saved, protected, or rescued. The opposition here is focused on external human influences. And they're described in two ways. They're described as unreasonable men, and then they're described as wicked men. So there's, we know that the adversaries of the Christian are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Here he's talking about human beings that are in the world's way of thinking, the world's way of influence, being influenced by satanic influences, but he's talking about people who are hindering and opposing the gospel outreach. So unreasonable men is usually translated as evil men, and it focuses on those who are actively intent on corrupting others. Versus wicked men, which speaks to those who are internally perverse, sick, and diseased. Now remember this, when the flesh is driving the boat in your life, you're both of these things. You can be a hindrance to the gospel. You can oppose the outreach to the gospel, even though you're a child of God. That's just mind-boggling, but true. That one who would be saved from bondage to sin. One who would be saved from the penalty of sin. One who would know his future is secure in heaven. That that person would actually end up being a hindrance to the gospel. So I believe Paul could be referring to 
believers who are interfering and opposing and hindering the gospel here and stopping the gospel from running swiftly and also unbelievers that are doing that. It would be pure speculation to say which he's referring to because he encounters both. He especially encounters the opposition though from the Jewish people that he goes to in each town who hear him out and listen to the gospel but then ultimately reject the gospel and then they are so upset when he preaches that same message of salvation to the Gentiles, to the other people in the community that they look down on because they see themselves as better than that. But yet they rejected the, the message. So you think about opposition. A couple of comments. Opposition is a natural byproduct of any gospel outreach. You should expect it. Satan invests himself completely in this endeavor, opposing and sidetracking and derailing gospel outreach endeavors. And it's often accomplished through deceived and rebellious human instruments. You could read about that as since you're going to be spending all this time in Acts this week. In the book of Acts chapter 4, you can read about how even the Jewish leaders, they were seeing how quickly the gospel was spreading and they said, oh no, how can we stop this? And so they were talking about it. Paul himself, of course, was used by Satan to hinder the spread of the gospel. Read about that in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, as he was said to be dragging men and women from their homes and persecuting them as the church was persecuted relentlessly in the early church. In, in a way that we, we should feel somewhat silly about even talking about being persecuted in this country. Yes, it's happening. Yes, people are against the gospel. Yes, the culture is, tr- is turning in that sense. But it's nothing compared to what the early church was facing. Paul was present. He was holding the coats of the people that were stoning the first Christian martyr, Stephen, to death. Paul was there. He was directing this. He was dragging men and women from their homes with their children screaming and and probably the neighborhood is being roused by this guy is dragging people out of their homes. I mean, just think about what that would involve. Uh, Imagine yourself being dragged out of your home for being a Christian and martyred for your faith in Christ. We don't know the first thing about suffering for Jesus Christ. But Paul was a part of that. And now he's talking about people that were, are doing what he, he had been a part of in the past. Now remember this, that God can use the opposition to the gospel to actually promote evangelistic outreach. So again, when you're enjoying this time in Acts, in your book, when you're in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, you'll see that God actually used what Paul was doing to cause the believers to flee And as the believers fled, what went with them? The message of hope, the gospel. Many of them, there's an argument that could be made that that never would have even happened if it hadn't been for the persecution. So can God even use human evil, human wickedness to advance the cause of Christ? And the answer is yes. He he caused the gospel to go to many different places as people were fleeing for their lives as they were being persecuted for the gospel. Now, What is the underlying cause or the underlying issue that causes opposition to the mission outreach? It's that not all have faith. You see that? Not all have faith. And you see that the greatest opposition typically comes from those who have heard the gospel message. They've had the opportunity to accept it, but instead they rejected it. It's not normally people who have never heard anything about Jesus that care about reject or opposing the gospel. The greatest opposition you're going to face is with people who have heard the gospel, had the chance to respond to the gospel, and they rejected it. And now they're really going to be bent out of shape about you because they have this thing where they love darkness rather than light. They've rejected the light. They've accepted darkness in place of the light. They don't love you. They're going to hate you because they hate Jesus Christ. They've rejected Jesus Christ. As they opposed Christ, they naturally are going to oppose you. Now, verse 3, we get to this. What a fun contrast this is. He just gets done talking about these people who don't have faith and are opposing or hindering the gospel. He says this, but remember this, but remember this, but remember this, the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. 
Yes, you're going to be opposed. Yes, you're going to be hindered. But the Lord is faithful. He's trustworthy, dependable. He's reliable. Now notice that as you have this contrast here between faithless and the faithful God, that the focus is on God. It's not on man. The focus is always on God. See, you're faced with these adversities that are hindering the gospel. So pray, pray that we would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men so that the gospel could run swiftly, that the gospel could be accepted and be honored. But just remember all along the way that God is going to be faithful. He's the one who's going to establish you and guard you. Now you think about this word, establish you. It refers to strengthening you or propping you up. He's the one who's going to be supporting you is the idea. And notice that Paul says pray for us, but now he's trying to encourage them. That's the kind of guy that Paul is. He starts off by saying pray these things for us. Now he's talking about how the Lord is faithful and how the Lord is going to establish you. He's talking to the Thessalonians. How the Lord is going to guard you. And so Jesus, of course, talked about this too in the sense of guarding us as we face opposition. John seventeen fifteen says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. See, Jesus could have prayed that when he left the world to go to prepare a place for us that, he, that all believers would have gone with him. But he didn't. He said, I'm going to leave you behind. Leave you behind for what purpose? For the purpose of evangelism. For the purpose of sharing the gospel. For the purpose so that other people could be saved by spreading the good news about who Jesus is. But he says, even though I'm not going to pray that the Father would take you away from this world, I want you to be lights for me in the midst of a crooked and perverse world. In fact, that's my mission. But I am going to pray this. I pray that the Father would protect you from the evil one and guard you while you're here. And that's exactly what Paul is reminding them about. And we get to verse 4 here. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now, this is connected to what was said about honoring the word of the Lord, that the gospel would run swiftly and that it would be honored. And overcoming the opposition and of people and Satan. So he's saying, I'm, we're confident that you're not going to be distracted from the cause, that you're not going to be lose sight of the mission, that you're not going to turn and run and, and be unwilling to pre present and declare Jesus Christ even though you're facing all of this opposition. We're confident that the Lord's faithfulness, the Lord's establishment, the Lord's guarding is going to be what's necessary for you to stay the course is the idea here. And it functions as a forward-looking prediction or a statement of this expectation that Paul has in part based on their past success that he's already seen with them trusting God and allowing God to use them as vehicles for the gospel message. And remember here that this statement isn't a statement of now pump this out in your flesh. It immediately follows this discussion about God's power and God's provision. And then it's immediately followed by verse 5 here, which is another statement about God's power and God's provision. So some people would read verse 4 there and say, oh, here we go. You gotta make, we're confident that you're going to do this in your own strength. No, that's not what he's talking about at all. We're confident that because of God's strength, you're going to stay the course and appropriate the provision of God in your life. So we end with verse 5 here. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ in what context as you go about staying the course, being steadfast in promoting this message that I'm asking you to pray for, for me as I'm seeking to be a vehicle for the message that it could run swiftly, it could be honored, that we could be protected from the opposition of men. And then he turned to them and said, and I know you're doing the same thing and I know you're suffering for Christ too and I know you're involved in the same mission outreach as I am. And so he says, so then let's find our confidence and get our strengthening in our inner man. Let's find that through focusing on the love that God has for us and also looking at the example of Jesus Christ, his example of steadfastness. That's what that word patience means. So that's what we're talking about here. May we turn our focus back to the Lord, focus on having this fuller appreciation for God's love, that should then result in you having a greater love for him as you see and you're reminded of how much he loves you. And then into this steadfast endurance that Christ had. Into that steadfast endurance that Christ had. Who's doing that? The Lord is directing your, your hearts into that steadfast endurance. And it's just a continuation of something that these believers were already known for. Just remember that, again, earlier in this book, in the first chapter, he said this, Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about what? That word perseverance is the same word for steadfastness. That steadfast endurance of your faith in spite of what? 
in spite of the persecutions and trials that you are enduring. So what is our takeaway this morning? There is a lot. I don't know what your takeaway will be, but praying for effective outreach was our title this morning. As we think about, is that something that we're praying for? Effective outreach. The gospel would run swiftly, that it would be honored, meaning it would be accepted, that God would help us with the opposition, those who are opposing that message, that we would find our, our, our hearts would be strengthened and encouraged by being mindful of or appreciating God's love for us to a fuller extent, and that we would be even uh, encouraged by the steadfast endurance of Jesus Christ as our model. So you think about that. Paul here has another example of focusing on these spiritual matters, evangelizing the lost, talking or spreading the truth about Jesus. That is the mission. And so then the question as you leave here should be, is, are these the things you're concerned about? Are these the things that you're praying about? Are, are these the things that you're mindful about? And they should be. They could be. The question is just, will, will they be? So let's have that be food for thought in addition to just seeing and being reminded that, you know, sometimes we get this sense that nobody's interested in the gospel. Part of the reason that we don't see a widespread response to the gospel is that we're not diligent to have a desire, to have a prayerful desire to be used of the Lord to be a vehicle for proclaiming the gospel. If we are more zealous and more outgoing in our desire, more focused on the mission, perhaps we would be sharing the gospel more and therefore more people would be responding to the gospel. So again, out of not, not in the context, but the principle, the fields are white and ready for harvest, but the laborers are few, that principle is true. The question is, will we get our eyes focused on the Lord, be enjoying the Lord personally as we're enjoying the Lord, will we let him work in our lives so we can be a part of that gospel outreach and would we we be praying that that outreach would be successful? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Just pray that the gospel would go forth effectively even in this community, that we would have boldness, that we would have a willingness and a desire to share your light in the darkness of the places and spaces that we go as we go about our day. Pray that there could be a wildfire of people responding to the gospel that would spread all across even the Iron Range, that this church would even be filled to the brim with people who are responding to the truth of God's word and interested in then growing in their faith and learning more about Jesus Christ. Pray that we would be willing ambassadors for you, not through our own strength, but through you who can strengthen us by reminding us of your love, reminding us of Christ's example of sacrifice and his willingness to serve others and to declare truth to a lost and dying world. Pray that we would have hearts, though, that are on fire for you, that we would have a desire to want to share that with others again. Thank you for every person that's here this morning. Pray that we would just be a body of believers that would love one another, encourage one another, build up one another, and that we could grow in grace and understanding together, that we would strive together for the furtherance of the gospel together, that we would minister to one another in love, that we would have a unity around our common bond in you. In Jesus' name, amen.